and welcome to The Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Make sure you find The Raptor Show wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe and please rate and review the show. I'm your host, Wayne Liu. I'm joined by co-host Blake Murphy. Coming up on the show today, we have an interview with Germany's head coach, Gordy Herbert, a season preview on Dennis Schroeder and Samson Folk from Raptors Republic. We'll join an hour or two to talk all things Scotty Barnes. Uh, but first, it's going to be me no, and that, Blake. That's fake. We, we just brought Samson in to bully the next gen of Raptors Republic people. Oh, well, you know, this is a direct uh, pipeline in terms of talent-wise. Um, RR obviously producing uh, the two of us. As, as I was going to say famous alumni. I got to check myself. Just very, very marginally famous alumni. Um, yeah, I just got back from practice. Uh, so, Blake, you've been holding it down over here. Uh, my, I mean, it's easy to hold it down when we're not on air yet. It's just uh, if you cut it any closer than you did, then, yeah, this would be the... Uh, the Blake Murphy show. This we, I would do a little Jay's talk today or something. Uh, man, the big news from practice, though, I got to ask you about. Uh-huh. Y- you asked Grady Dick about how he ends up in Adonis's music video. What's the scoop, man? Yeah, this is why I had to go down to practice. Um, the scoop is that, so for people who don't know, Adonis is Drake's son. Uh, this is like the fourth time this week we've explained this. He's like a four-year-old. How old is he? I don't know. Old enough to like give a rousing halftime speech in the film room. Okay. At most, I would say seven years old. At most, but probably like between four and five. And he put out a music video that was he's shot. He's six. He's six. Okay, yeah. So he put out a music video that was shot at OVO practice facility where I was just at. And to many people's surprise, Grady was just chilling there in the video. He wasn't really doing too much. He was just kind of just sitting there with Drake and his son. Um, so when I was down there at practice and Grady was speaking, I just decided to ask him, I was like, how did you end up in there? And Grady actually said he just happened to be in the building, you know, because, you know, he works there. Uh, he was just getting shots up, and, you know, he noticed, obviously, the whole crew came in, and, you know, basically, Drake was like, why don't you just hop in with us? And he's like, yeah, why not? And so that's the that's the story. That's really the story. He was just in the right place at the right time. Now, the question that flows from that is, do you believe the story? Do you believe uh, that he j- it was just pure serendipity uh, that had him there at that time? Because my thought is, okay. you know, yeah. someone, it, like, I'm sure there's there's a a group chat for like trying to figure out who's shooting when or who's getting their work in at, at OVO yeah. and someone drops in there. Hey, Drake's coming through. Right. If I'm a rookie in the NBA and I hear that I might, I might change my shooting times around a little bit. Yeah. Well, listen, I'm happy for, for Grady because like this is in record time, you know, cause obviously Drake shows a lot of love to all the Raptors. That's been a consistent theme. You know, he's had Kawhi in a music video, for example, actually that was after he left the Raptors, but whatever, who cares? Let's just put that aside. Uh, I'm I'm not over it, but um, yeah. I mean, this Grady was in there like within. He hasn't even played a full like regular. He season hasn't played game an yet. NBA minute yet, and he's already in the videos, and so. he's already in there. Um, but you can tell though, because everybody just wants a piece of Grady. You know what I mean? Grady like, did. Like everybody just wants a piece uh, uh, in terms of just having him and all the content and all the stuff. So I mean, we saw, uh, you know, friend of the program Keyshawn actually did a, a shoot with him. Oh yeah. Like, what, what do you wear with uninterrupted Canada and? Uh, Grady picked out some nice fits. So everyone wants to do content. You know, Chris said on the show that he wants his first guest to be Grady when he comes back. So there you yeah. go. And I, I believe that was that was sponsored content as well. That was SponCon. That was uh there that was part of a new collection from one of the fashion places or whatever. So right. uh Grady also getting that getting that supplement to the rookie scale contract nice and early as well. Good for him. Yeah. Uh, anything else from practice? We get anything on on Jakob uh, Pertl and Precious Chua for tomorrow? Yeah. So the first thing uh, I noted coming into practice was just that um, Jakob was actually there. You know, not in like the no contact jerseys, just in the regular starter jerseys. 
and he's just getting shots up after practice. Um, and yeah, it was later confirmed by Darko that he will be hopefully getting some minutes in the final preseason game against Washington. By the way, the Washington Wizards are preseason. Jordan Poole, fresh off a 41-point game, might not be so easy, all right? Might not be so easy. But regardless, um, yeah, it would be great to see him back in the lineup. I think that he's obviously such a big part of what uh, the team's going to do. And then, of course, Precious Achua it was also around getting shots up. He's been doing that in the last couple of days. He hasn't been away for the team, like Jakob, for example, just being sick. Uh, but it, hopefully we get to see some of his, uh, his time on the court. Because, I mean, this is not the discussion we wanted to have, but... Isn't it close to extension time for, for a guy like Precious? Yeah, it is. For for Precious Achua and Malachi Flynn, they're, they're both um, extension eligible off of their rookie scale extensions. Now, these are not as urgent as, say, a Gary Trent or a Pascal Siakam. Neither of those guys is headed to unrestricted free agency. Mm-hmm. If they don't get an extension worked out, uh, they would be restricted free agents in the summer. Generally, what happens in those cases is the teams, the, the players' team still has a really good chance to keep them, and, and it often works out that way. Um, with Malachi Flynn it's a bit more of a question because his qualifying offer would probably be higher than you're comfortable with if he were to take it. So maybe that's a case where you let him hit unrestricted free agency, but precious, you're fine. It it would be obviously for cost certainty and to reward the player. You would love to be able to find a number that makes sense, but if he goes to free agency, it's not that big a deal. You very rarely see guys coming off the rookie scale deals uh, who are made RFAs get poached by another team, at least until you get up to kind of the higher salary yeah. tiers. I, I don't know that Precious is looking at more than, say, like the mid-level exception from another team. So you're, you're pretty comfortable riding that out to RFA if you're the Toronto Raptors. And if you're Precious, you might do you, you might prefer the yeah, bet on yourself not? ahead of a year where you're going to have more role and responsibility as well. Right. But if I'm the Raptors, and I really believe that Precious is going to break out, I will try to lock him in a number right now. Yeah, what was the number we threw around the other day? I threw I a 432, and you said you bumped it a little higher than I that. Think I, mean, I think I said 440. Give yeah. him a 10... You know, ten per year. That's almost at mid level. Yeah, mid level this year was about twelve million. It'll probably go up. We're expecting the cap to go up ten percent. So you know, thirteen, thirteen and a half million will be the new mid level uh, next year. You can lock Precious in if you can lock him in for four years at at ten million a year. um, You know, that's going to be. I mean, look at the contract Chris Boucher's on. Right, that's that's Mm. less than the contract Chris Boucher's on, and that's a pretty good deal for your first big off the bench. So for sure, for sure. Okay, uh, we're going to talk a lot of Dennis Schroeder today. Um, so you had an interview with his coach that's going to be coming up uh, in segment two. But uh, let's let's talk about sort of what we see from Dennis this year. Obviously, he actually spoke at practice as well. Um, you know, he's been working a lot. Did he have much to say other all. than, like, stop caring about preseason? Um, I mean, I think he, he takes the regular approach that most 30-year-olds would take towards preseason, which is like, you know, like they've been there and done that. But at the same time, like, you know, he's been consistently getting shots up post-practice. There's this thing that um, there's like, well, there's really six courts in, uh, or six hoops in, mm-hmm. in, in the practice facility, as you know. But there's like those uh, four main baskets. And one of them is like really close to where the media does the, the scrums off to the side. And so in that near corner of the gym, it's always been, every time we've been to practice recently, it's always been Dennis. Malachi. Malachi. Uh, Garrett Temple. And then some Ron Harper has been in there. You know, Javon nah, Liberty's the, been in there. The two ways and the and the nine oh five guys have to work. You you said it's six nets, but really just four. Oh, the, yeah. Those guys get bumped to the fifth and sixth. Definitely net. saw uh, McCormaker making some shots by himself. Yeah. Um, in, in the very very far deep uh, middle net. But like, yeah, I mean, that's always sort of been the the court nearest closest to us when we do our media sessions, and they're consistently doing this three point drill sort of throughout the thing, and they were just always having these conversations. So a lot of questions asked about Dennis in terms of like his leadership in terms of all that kind of stuff, but. What do you actually expect from Dennis on the court besides the leadership aspect? 
Yeah, I mean, the leadership aspect is something we're going to talk about with Gordy when, when we play this pre-tape in the next segment. So that's something that, you know, obviously was a, a big factor for um, that German national team. Like, like one of Gordy's first moves was naming Dennis the captain and moving mm. off of the prior captain. So uh, that's a part of this, but I think... You Who know, was the he, prior captain? He was... Pardon? Who was the prior captain? I'm drawing a blank. Okay, okay. Gordy says it in the interview, but oh, I'm, okay, I'm okay, drawing a blank you. on... It's uh, a teaser. Yeah, yeah, there are a couple teasers. I, I used his quote about... Uh, <laughs> I'd rather tame a lion than uh, teach a cat the roar yesterday, too. So um, I'm recycling a lot from that interview. Gordy was great. Um, so, look, uh, the the leadership thing or, or the personality thing is a part of this. But Dennis Schroeder has been brought in because they think he can play a role on this team. That's a guy who played 30 minutes a game last year. Yeah, on a Lakers team that was kind of thin and, and kind of mediocre in the regular season, but one that went to the Western Conference Finals and Dennis Schroeder was a pretty big part of that team. So I think you're looking for a couple different things from him. Um, certainly you're not looking for, even though Dennis Schroeder and Darko Ryakovic have a relationship back to their time in OKC together, which were arguably the the best, you know, two of the best three years of Dennis Schroeder's career, uh, statistically and role-wise, um, you're not looking for that version of him. You're looking for something that is closer to the Lakers version of him, which is, yes, secondary scoring. Um, last year was the first time he really was ever stationed in the corner as a shooter all that often not a particularly great three-point shooter but I think that speaks to you know he came off the ball a little bit more than than he had been used to in his career and, and yeah so some of that secondary scoring and the biggest thing offensively I think is you know a guy who can get you into your sets with some real pace mm. even if it's okay. not in transition necessarily uh, and I wonder Will uh, what you've seen of Dennis Schroeder so far what you remember from Dennis Schroeder in previous stops just how big is, like, obviously, when we think of speed, I think most people first picture, like, transition play, right? Yeah. But in the half court, that quick burst can be really important as well. How can that help the Raptors? Well, I, I think, number one, like, what you're talking about, getting into their offense quicker is going to be a huge part of what he brings. I mean, you know, just even crossing half court, even having the urgency to sort of play quickly. And then when you're running through your sets, like, you can drop a great play all you want, but if your players aren't going through it quickly with some purpose, with some punch... It's not going to happen. And I feel like uh, watching him run point, at least so far in preseason, you know, there is that drive. There is that verve. I think with Dennis in particular, especially with his quickness, I mean, we're talking about mostly getting downhill. Um, you know, he has that ability to uh, come off that screen and turn the corner and, and you know, not even – he's not that tall. I mean, even standing beside him, you know, I might be slightly taller than him. But, like, he has this ability to, like, really stretch and, and get to sort of angles where he's able to play it off the glass. I think that probably hurts his efficiency in a slight bit just in the sense that he's always sort of stretching to the mm -hmm. finish rather than sort of like um, always getting to his spots. But we've even seen it occasionally in preseason. I haven't think he hasn't really been all that aggressive with his own offense, but in the times where he has, um, he's been able to get to the rim a decent amount. We saw him pull out a really nice Rondo fake mm. uh, in the Cans game where uh, there was, I don't know, somebody on the Cans team was really pressuring Dennis. And, somebody. Uh, I think it was Patrick Miller. Fine. Yeah. Patrick Miller was, you know. Well, it was him or Alfred Payton. It was, it was Eric, defending it was Dennis. Eric Bledsoe yeah. clone was, was, was pressing Dennis really, really hard. And Dennis just put it calmly behind his back a couple of times and then took him all the way to the basket. And because the guy was trying to chase so hard to keep up with him, when Dennis pulled the brakes and did the Rondo fake, the guy just went flying. Unfortunately, Dennis missed the, the turnaround little jump hook. But still, like, there is a craft to his game. I like seeing uh, the angles that he's been playing with his passing as well. There's been a lot of bounce passing from him so far. Uh, but I also I am a little bit curious because he did say today, like literally probably 30 minutes ago now, he said the preseason doesn't mean any, anything at all. Um, so I do wonder sort of what we've seen so far in three games 
is that going to be exactly reflective of sort of what we can expe- uh, expect for the season? Because there are, there have been kind of two versions of Dennis in the NBA, right? There's been like a scoring six-man type of Dennis, and then there's been sort of more floor general um, playing defense and sort of getting off the ball Dennis. So let, let me ask you then. I, I think we are going to see more of the number two version of Dennis Schroeder there. I don't think the Raptors brought him in to play a huge offensive role. We kicked around the prop the other day right, of right. would he even have 20% usage, which is league average. He's only been below it twice in his rookie year and yeah. then last year with the Lakers. But you guys, you and Alex both took the the slight under on that one, that he probably has a little less usage than he's been used to and more in line with what he did with the Lakers. Now, one of the benefits of carrying less usage generally is that's an opportunity to be more efficient. The shots you were taking are easier shots or they're not necessarily self-created. I wonder how you think that might play out because – He is a guy who gets to the rim and that short kind of floater range area a little better than average for a point guard or a combo guard. Not a great finisher there, but he does do a pretty good job drawing free throws historically Mm -hmm. as well. I think a lot of times when we think of what a guy's role is going to look like scaled back, we think, okay, well, less self-creation and more, you know, catch and shoot threes where he's not a great three-point shooter, but he shot 35% on catch and shoots last year. But I I do think that some of his offensive opportunities are still going to come from attacking a defense and trying to get into the paint. Do you, could you see his, uh, an uptick in his efficiency around the rim and at the free throw line even though that, you know, historically has not been an area that that he finishes super well? I find that a little bit difficult just because, I mean, first off, you can't really compare efficiency just at face value between different roles, right, across different roles. And I think for a guy like Dennis, he's going to be creating a lot of his own offense, especially when we're talking about attacking off the dribble. I'm sure there's other ways to sort of get him open as well. But for the most part, especially in the half court, if he's going to get to the basket, it's going to be because he's, you know, taking that initiative to beat his man and get to the hoop. And I do think there's going to be less spacing here than there was with the Lakers. Now, of course, the Lakers also started last season with, like, some of the worst three-point shooting you've ever seen. Like, worse than the Raptors uh, last season. But by the season's end, especially in the playoff run, they were able to add a lot more shooters. Austin Reeves, who Dennis <laughs> loves bringing up Austin Reeves every conversation. He brought up him again today. He talked about how he loves Austin Reeves because Austin used to always come up and say hi to his kids and his family and stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, that was a team that was playing LeBron, Anthony Davis, and Russell Westbrook, and Patrick Beverly like good minutes yeah what was Rob Palenka cooking but then again <laughs> he did cook in the second half when he yeah. got in a guy like Rui Hachimura who felt like he made every jumper for the Lakers uh after joining them from the the Wizards and also Austin Reeves got more empowered I mean even bringing in a guy like D'Angelo Russell I don't he didn't really necessarily shoot that great but Jared Vanderbilt more of a shooter I mean Vanderbilt a little iffy but still, I mean like, look Rui and Vanderbilt both shot 30 percent on threes and it still felt like it added spacing to that team yeah right well so they were really deficient but I mean at the same time I, I do feel like for Dennis like coming to Toronto there is not going to be as much space in terms of stretching the floor mm-hmm. uh, for him. But I think what he's going to do to adjust to that is just become more of a playmaker and, and even increase the sort of catch-and-shoot opportunities. He already wasn't really much of a pull-up shooter. Last year, he only took, uh, what, 0.5 pull-up threes per game and 2.7 pull-up twos per game. So he actually does a, a, a fair amount of mid-range pull-ups uh, or those little floaters that you're sort mm-hmm. of mentioning. But in terms of the threes, I mean, most of the threes, uh, 2.8 per game, Versus 0.5, 2.8 were the catch-and-shoot type. Is what, 35% change? That was 35. Now, maybe that can get a little bit higher. Um, but ultimately, like, you know, that's sort of where you would like to see his role be more efficient. But to me, it's not necessarily about his individual efficiency. It's about how he's able to sort of set up the offense and help the efficiency of his teammates. 
Because yeah. that's what I feel like the point guard position needs to be right now for the Raptors. It does. And it's going to be an interesting challenge for Dennis Schroeder because you look at some of his career stats and the assist numbers really stand out, right? And the assist percentage. But those were also times where, you know, in Atlanta and to a lesser extent in OKC, he had the ball a ton. So, you know, cleaning the glass has a stat where they adjust your assist rate for your overall usage. So how much are you passing relative to how much you have the ball? Right. And he's always been a little below average for for a point guard or even a combo guard in that regard. So the challenge for him is not necessarily that he's capable of passing. It's finding that right mix of when do I pass, when do I shoot? And I think that is probably the one thing that we are going to see from Dennis Schroeder that is most atypical with, with what his career has been to this point is – yeah, I think this is going to be for the first time, really, other than maybe those that, those couple minutes he spent in Houston the other year, you are a pass-first point guard rather than a scoring point guard who can also pass. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I, my question to you there is, um, do you think that was an intentional part by the Raptors? Because when they, obviously, Fred left, and um, depending on sort of what you believe in terms of the reports and all that kind of stuff, the Raptors you know, tried to keep him, but obviously weren't able to come anywhere close to what Houston was offering. So they must have had to figure out a plan B in terms of, okay, what do we want to do with the point guard position now? And there were several sort of like mid-level tier uh, point guards available at that time. And the Raptors obviously chose to go with Dennis. Do you think that was intentional though, that they wanted to go with more of a sort of pass first, defense first kind of point guard rather than someone who's more of a scorer. Let's say like a Gabe Vincent, for example, who ultimately went to the Lakers, actually took Dennis's old job, essentially. Yeah, I, I think they probably would have preferred, honestly, someone who had a little bit more shooting in their game. I, okay. I just think that okay. it's such an at-need skill right now with, with this team still. Um, but yeah, that, that can be expensive, right? Like Gabe Vincent got... Uh, a little less money than Dennis Schroeder on a per-year basis, but he got more term. Dante DiVincenzo got about the same deal, but twice as long. So if you're looking at, and, and obviously... Yeah. I mean, those, he's not even a point guard. Either. Yeah, I mean, I'm just filtering by guards here. He, right. Like, Max Struess is not a point guard either, but he got, you know, significantly more than Dennis Schroeder. And that's basically what the market looked like. Like, you you didn't have the cap space and the money to get into a D'Angelo Russell type, and you didn't want to reach down as far as a Javon Carter type. It was a really thin point guard class, which is how Fred Van Vliet ends up getting $43 million a year, right? He might have got more money than the rest of the point guards combined. Yeah, so, um, yeah. you know, I, I think they would have preferred to have a little bit more shooting out of yeah. whoever they signed there, and I think that's probably something they've challenged Dennis with, getting better in that regard, obviously. Um but I think, look, there are some boxes he checks that suit what this team is trying to do. The the pace in the half court, the, you know, secondary, not even secondary playmaking because he's a point guard, um, yeah. just not a 10 assist a game point guard. So so that's an important thing. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot to like about the defense, especially if this yep. is a team that isn't going to want to switch quite as much. He uses his length well, whether going under or chasing over top. Um, you know, he's not always the most locked in defensively, but you see there everyone I'm sure remembers highlights over the years of him giving point guards fits by getting up in the Jersey. I think maybe you maybe just have to like get him mad first or something like that to, hey, to get him like that. Maybe all the OG time. flips him before every game. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think it's look, the, the reality is you had only the mid-level exception to shop with Dennis Schroeder on a two-year mid-level exception deal is very good value. Mm. And that I think won out more than, Oh, this guy is the very best fit of any point guard available. There just weren't that many point guards available. And, and if you wanted to go for, you know, fit over 
overall talent, you were then shopping in a significantly lower tier. So um, this one, I mean, you could address that by trade or something like that as well. But I think Schroeder just, you know, kind of right spot, right time. And it's not, you know, it's not the most perfect snap him into the Fred roll fit, but the value there is really good. And, you know, I I think we we both expect they're going to tweak a lot of things anyway. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be good it's it's not going to be perfect but it's going to be pretty good part of me does wonder um what is what is the long-term future at point guard because you know we're talking about dennis he's 30 uh he's here on a two-year deal um i think he can do the job right now um but i mean i do wonder in terms of long term who it is because i don't think there's many point guards in the pipeline even who have the ability to potentially start you know if everything pans out for malachi for example he's going to be good off the bench um or you know same thing to a lesser degree to jeff Doughton if he stays or uh, javon freeman liberty uh guys like that but realistically um you know i i don't know what that long-term future looks like but i also think that one thing that you you put in these notes that i thought was really interesting i want to get to it before the break was just um you think there's any chance that the raptors change course over the course of the season and flip the starting lineup around and they put gary in to the starting group and they put dennis off the bench because to me it seems like the more Malachi, if Malachi struggles or, you know, again, I want to give him that chance. I think the team is going to give him that chance. But let's say a month, two months in, he's really struggling with that backup point guard position. You have a guard off the bench that you can start that can slot with your starters. Um, and then you can have Dennis, who you know has been a really good second unit bench uh, guard, and that could fix your problem. So I, I am curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think it's something that they should keep in the mix, right? Like okay. how, how much have we learned over the last couple of years that you got to be flexible with your starting of line course, because stuff happens, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Um, you know, I think we should see that as a matter of trying new things. Now, they haven't run that basically at all no, in the no, preseason no, no. to no, hear Gary. Plan A is to do what we're doing yeah. right now. Yeah. Um, you know, role-wise, Dennis Schroeder as a lead bench guard who takes on a little bit more scoring makes sense, right? And that's probably part of the draw here too is that they think he can adjust to this kind of fifth starter role, but also if it comes to it, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's via substitution pattern or having him come off the bench he's shown for most of his career that he can be a really effective second unit lead scorer so um i I think that's a possibility i think the answer to whether the raptors go that route with gary and whether and what the long-term plan at point guard is they both have a little bit to do with how scotty barnes develops with the ball in his hands Mm -hmm. this year now i don't think we're going to reach the point this year where Scotty Barnes is a quote-unquote full-time point guard and he's initiating every set and averaging eight assists a game. Like, I I don't think that's there yet. But if we're starting to see more of the growth that we're anticipating, especially in that, you know, the transition playmaking is there. But if we're starting to see more growth in the half-court playmaking, things like that, you can live a little bit more without having a natural point guard on the floor. The the issue with handing that to Scotty right now and Gary Trent being in the starting lineup is you would, yes, get better spacing, but you would sacrifice, hey, six seconds left on the clock, sideline out of bounds. We need to get the ball into a safe pair of hands that we know can create something. Um, You know, someone who can bring the ball up the floor against pressure and things like that. Scotty and Pascal, Pascal's probably capable of doing some of that. Scotty's probably going to grow into that, but the timeline on which that growth is happening probably informs some of this. And and you can almost think of Dennis Schroeder as a a bridge guy, right? In in terms of the Raptors can't know yet exactly how Scotty is going to develop as a ball handler and whether that necessitates, you know, does that top out at a spot where you need a true point guard next to him? Does that get to a spot where you can get someone who's like a four assist a game kind of guy, but offers more off the ball juice around Scotty and Pascal. If Pascal's still here, I think Dennis buys you some time to, to figure that out developmentally. 
That's interesting. I kind of like that approach uh, management-wise. Okay, we're going to go to an earlier break uh, because I really want to get to the conversation that you had with Dennis's coach, uh, Gordy Herbert. So we're going to run that after this break. But I've been your host, Will Lou. That's Blake Murphy. You're listening to The Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Raptors show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I'm your host, Will Lou. I'm joined by Blake Murphy. As we mentioned before the break, Blake was able to chat with German head coach Gordy Herbert. Uh, so here is that chat for you guys. Joined now by head coach of the German national team, former head coach of Canada basketball as well, Gordy Herbert. Uh, Gordy, good morning. How are you? Thank you for joining us from Finland. Yeah, good morning. Doing great. Thank you. Uh, so I want to talk to you a lot about the World Cup experience this past summer, uh, about coaching Germany, about working with Dennis Schroeder. But you are fresh off a stint here, being around the Raptors for for a chunk of training camp. You were out in Vancouver uh, with the team. How was that? How was that experience for you? No, it was very good. I mean, I, it was it was nice that uh, the Raptors let me come in and watch. And uh, um, I've always enjoyed watching other coaches work, and it's it's a great learning experience. And um, you know, I met Darko. I had breakfast with him. Had some good talks, and um, um, I thought he did a great job running camp, putting things in, and and creating a real good atmosphere. And it looks like a team identity is coming along. So it was. I was very impressed. Did you know Darko prior to to this week? I didn't know him personally. I mean, we we have a lot of the same friends and in, in Europe and. Um, different things so but I did not know him personally um, so you you mentioned he, he you know ran a good camp but what other kind of impressions have you come away with uh, about coach Darko here and getting to know him for a week or so um, very humble um, down to earth um, you know he's just a, a normal person uh, got really good European roots and um I think you're going to see a combination of European basketball with NBA basketball. So you you've coached on both sides, both the primarily on the European side, but you remember the Raptors staff back in I think 08, 09 uh, under Sam Mitchell and Jay Triano. Um, how difficult is that to to blend the European sensibilities around basketball and style of play into an NBA game? I think back then in 2008, 2009, it was the games were completely different. I think they've come more closer together a little bit where, you know, the NBA is really stressing shooting, three-point shot, um, floor spacing, ball movement a little bit more, um, a little bit like San Antonio did, uh, you know, 10, 12 years ago. D'Antoni in, in uh, Phoenix with Steve Nash. So I think it's it, the games have come closer together. Obviously, there's still a difference you know, is you know, it's just FIBA basketball versus NBA basketball. Um, so when you're at training camp with the Raptors, obviously Dennis Schroeder is there as well. The Raptors signed him, uh, and then he goes on this World Cup MVP run as part of your German club. How much of that week was spent, you know, still staying close with Dennis, maybe letting Darko know what to expect and how to get the best out of him? Yeah, I mean, Dennis and I talked the first day, and then we had a long talk the last day before um, I left. And uh, 
Um, yeah, Darko and I talked about it a little bit. I mean, Darko's got a good relationship with Dennis already from um, OKC. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a really selling point for both for both of them, Dennis coming there and Darko wanting Dennis there. And I think it's a great fit for the Raptors. Um, I mean, I text with Dennis that, um, when I when I saw the news that he was going to Toronto. I was excited for him. Um, he's extremely excited to go there. Um, I think he's you know he's got a little he's got something to prove in the NBA still. And I think the Raptors are are getting a, a player that's extremely motivated with something to prove. I think it's a great fit for both sides. Is the biggest and obviously Dennis? No, and obviously Dennis coming off the World Cup MVP is. Uh, I think it's a great situation. Obviously, that's a role that Dennis thrived in with, with you in the German club. We've seen him play that role for Germany in the past, in the Euros, in, in the 2019 World Cup. Um, is the biggest challenge for Dennis finding exactly what his role is in the NBA where he's not, you know, obviously the ball's in his hand a lot still as a point guard, but he doesn't have quite the same offensive responsibility as he does with your German team? Yeah, I think so. I think in L.A., you know, he ran a lot to the corner different things he wasn't the primary ball handler i think what really intrigues him about about coming to toronto is he has an opportunity to be the primary ball handler but he also has very good players around him where he can be the playmaker um and then score so i think it's a i think it's a great fit for him um um you know he won't will not have the the offense responsibility that he had with us but he will have some, but he will. I just, I just think it's a great fit where he can be the playmaker and get everyone involved and, and be able to run the show. What was the process like for you getting to know Dennis from 2021-ish when you, you got the job with Germany? I think you were out in Russia at the time. Um, Dennis is obviously in the NBA. And through the European Championship, Eurobasket in 2022, the World Cup in 2023, um, you know, sometimes... Dennis has a little bit of a reputation around the NBA as a guy who can be a, a little emotional and things like that. I, I know you guys had the moment, I think it was in the Slovenia game where, where you had to kind of reel him in a little bit. Um, what has that process been like for you to get to know Dennis, the person and Dennis, the player and, and how that, you know, how the personality side fits with the basketball side. Yeah. When I got the job with, with the German national team, one of the first things I did, I got my car and I, I drove to Braunschweig. And I had lunch with Dennis, and, uh, you know, I thought it was going to be an hour meeting. It turned into about three or four hours. And uh, for the most part, I listened. And um, I really felt, a, you know, a, a, a person with heart, um, really a person who really wanted to represent his country, took a lot of pride in representing his country, and a lot, a lot of pride in being a really good family man. Um, you know, I think Dennis has been... You know, probably he's made some mistakes, and you know we live in that world today with in the social media that everything kind of um, mistakes get um, talked about a lot. And um, so I think he, you know, I think he's really matured as a person and as a player. And you know, my my whole thing was when I got the national team was not only with Dennis but with everybody is develop relationships. Um, Dennis was the first one I met with, but I also met with about 35 to 40 players individually just to really develop relationship, um, develop trust and respect, so to speak, and, and go from there. 
Um, yeah, I mean, and you know, one of the biggest things I did was um, I cut our captain, Robin Benzing, in our first summer camp, and I made Dennis the captain. And, you know, I, to a certain extent, I said, you know, embrace this, and uh, this is your team. And uh, and he did more than embrace it and did, uh, did a tremendous job with leadership. Yes, yeah, certainly the, the results, you can't argue with them uh, whatsoever. Um, in, in doing that, in making Dennis the captain, obviously there's a, an on-court component to that, but what is it about him that you, and you mentioned it a little bit there, but but what is it about him that you thought made him the right leader for that for that Germany team? I, I just felt when I met him, I, I just felt a passion and a heart for representing his country that I didn't know about. And um, yeah, you know, and he he takes a lot of a lot of he he really takes uh, I don't know what the right word is, but um, it's a really an honor for him to represent the country, and I felt that, and you know, and and with, with that being said, Dennis is very competitive, uh, one of the most one if not the most competitive player I've ever coached, one of them, and um, and you know and our practices were extremely competitive and uh you know and sometimes you have to reel it back a little bit but like i like i say i you know i'd rather try to tame a lion than than teach a cat how to roar <laughs> so to speak and um so it, it's a good thing and you know we had some adversity situations obviously like everyone wants to talk about the slovenia game mm -hmm. and uh um you know, but adversity builds, conflicts build, and we embraced it. And and I think people saw we were down by 15 in the first quarter against Slovenia, a very good team, and we ended up winning by 29 after that. And, um, you know, it, it made us stronger. And, uh, you know, adversity can break you or make you stronger. We've always tried to embrace adversity and make it stronger. And, and sometimes you have conflicts with players. Uh, I'm paraphrasing a quote here from Dennis sometime after the World Cup, but I wonder how much this kind of encapsulates both the leadership ability and that competitiveness where, you know, he he got asked about looking ahead to the Olympics. He said something along the lines of, that doesn't really matter what the rest of the world does. We know what we're going to do as the defending World Cup champs. Is that kind of at the heart of what you like so much about Dennis and what the German mentality is going to be heading into the Olympics? Right. I think we, you know, we really tried to create an identity with our team. And, uh, you know, our whole thing was, and I, I heard a hockey coach say this the other day was, um, we cannot let the pressure um, be, be greater than the pleasure. And, um, and, you know, that's, we really enjoyed what we were doing. And, you know, getting back to your question, I think, you know, our thing was, hey, we're going to play the way we play. And we're going to make people adjust to us. And that's the mentality we took into it that um, even against the United States, I mean, you know, a lot of people said we have to slow it down. We have to do this and that. And, uh, um, you know, we came out and played our game. And uh, um, if you wanted to say we were going to win it, beat the United States in a 100-point game, I would say you're crazy. But um, <laughs> somehow we did it. Um, but I think getting back to your question, I think, you know, it's – you know, what the other teams do that, you know, we have no control over that. We have control over what we do, um, the commitment we make. But with this team, the biggest thing was not only the commitment, but the care factor. We cared about each other. Players 
cared about each other and um and we enjoyed what we were doing obviously the care factor i mean is very high for you to take this job but we saw that moment after you won the championship i know you've been asked about it probably a couple times at this point of you kind of sitting on the floor overcome with emotion it looked like in that moment um look your roots in in european basketball go back a long time your roots in as a coach in germany go back a long time um what was that moment like for you and do you even recall you know what you were feeling at, at that time yeah i mean a lot of people ask me about that i mean i was actually looking for a chair to sit down <laughs> on i was just i was just exhausted and uh couldn't find a chair so i ended up sitting down then i ended up lying down for some reason i was just overtaken i just really it, everything just kind of hit me right then what we had accomplished and uh and and the moment and um, I just kind of had to gather myself, and um, unfortunately, I was right in the way of the camera. But um, um, I really don't know what was going through my mind. It was just the emotions, and I had to gather myself. And 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 I, you know, because you know, this was a special moment, and I just wanted to kind of embrace this moment and enjoy this moment. So what has the response been? I, I know you're not based in Germany, but you know, you're a Canadian, you're from BC, you've played for Canada in the Olympics. I know you're a naturalized Finnish citizen from all the time you spent there. Is Germany also being like, look, Gordy, you're you're German now too, now now that we've won a World Cup? Yeah, I mean, we've had great response from the country. Um I actually go back there next week. Um you know, and it's 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 been um, overwhelming to a certain extent. I mean, I've been asked to do a lot of keynote speaking on leadership and team building, and um, a lot of people have reached out. And uh, I think it's great for German German basketball in Germany, which is a soccer country. And um, you know, and not only did we win the World Cup, but we moved up to number three in the World Cup rankings. Um, you know, it's just an unbelievable accomplishment by a, a, you know, of a team. And I think, you know, we were a team first and foremost, and then we had really good individual talents. Last one for you on, on Germany before I hit you with a couple Canada questions. Uh, just how good is Franz Wagner going to be? We we obviously get a window into it with the Orlando Magic. He has a very nice tournament for you guys. Really does seem like from that draft class that also includes, you know, Cade and Scotty and Evan Mobley that he could end up being the, the most special talent out of that class. Uh, absolutely. And, um, you know, he's just... As good a basketball player he is, he's even a better person. Uh, extremely coachable. Um, I call him the silent assassin. <laughs> his brother, his brother does most of the talking. Um, France is pretty quiet. You know, unbelievable talent, um, and he's only going to get better and better. And um, uh, you know, for me, already he's one of the top top players in the FIBA world. And, uh, you know, I, I could see in one or two years he's going to be an NBA All-Star and unbelievable competitor, too. I mean, we had great practices. We would put Dennis on one team, Frost on the other team, and, uh, and we would compete. And, we, and those two would go at each other. And, uh, and as silent as Franz went is, he would go at his brother also for setting legal screens. So... <laughs> I mean, his competitiveness is is off the charts, just like Dennis's. And and you know what? What's great about it when your two best players are your most competitive players, it makes it um, really, really good.
yeah special tone setter that way yeah i mean i mean france is going to be special i mean he already is an extremely talented player but he's going to be a very very special player so we got a look i mean obviously we, we were all watching the world cup anyway i was getting up at four in the morning for these games and uh you know we got to see not a very great feed of but we got to see you guys play against canada in two tune-up games um i know obviously the canadian basketball program also means a lot to you you played in on the olympic and world cup teams you have coached a bunch of these teams that helped canada get to the world cup in the first place what was that part of the world cup like for you like were you kind of keeping a, a second eye on, on canada and rooting for them up to the point where they'd have to play against you guys in, in germany <laughs> It was. I would. I would. I would be lying if I said it wasn't a little bit difficult to play them right then, and <laughs> we played them twice in Germany. And you hear the Canadian national anthem, and uh, and you're on the other side. So that was obviously that was a little bit different, a little bit difficult. But once the game started, it was just another game. Um, one time I looked at the score and I, th I, I said Canada Germany, and I looked at. It, I thought we were winning, but it was Canada beating us at one time. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was, but it was pretty neat. Um, you know, one of my goals growing up was to play for the Canadian national team. And then when I started coaching, it was to coach the Canadian national team. I coached in the windows, but I really never coached the main team. Um, so, but, um, it was a great experience for me, um, playing and coaching Canada. And obviously, I mean, I really, it was, it was nice to see Rowan Barrett kind of, you know, finally get the best players to play or most of the best players to play and commit. And I think that started with Nick Nurse, um, you know, after the, after us not qualifying for the Olympics in Victoria. And they played really good basketball. I mean, Jordy did a really good job with that team. They played good basketball. And for me, it was really special to see them win the bronze medal. Um, um, it'll be, be would have been very interesting for us to play them in the gold medal game, um, but but I think they ended it on a very positive note, um, and it was great for them to see, great for for the whole country to kind of see this with the bronze medal. And hey, maybe we'll get that Canada Germany matchup in the Olympics in an official game instead of a, an exhibition game. Um, and, and look, yeah. it, it sounds like you guys are trying to do some of the same things Canada is doing with that, you know, multi-year commitment and that continuity. I think you said you you expect what nine, ten, maybe even eleven guys back from from your World Cup Germany team. Yeah, when I got the job, I you know I really stressed we're going to have a three-year commitment, and if you want to play, you got to come from day one, and and commit. For me, the a big thing with uh, national teams is you got to have some continuity. You only have five, six days. You have a very short period of time for preparation. Um, you got to have some continuity. And, um, you know, we talked about a three-year plan. We talked about, um, I talked about the goals right away. We're going to, we're going to get to the podium and, and all, everybody laughed. And, uh, but I saw the, I think I saw the, the Canadian soccer coach, was it John Herdman? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, he talked about getting to the World Cup, and a lot of people in Canada kind of laughed at that s segment. And uh, I think you got to talk about what you want to accomplish. And we talked about it right from day one, and um, and started with a three-year commitment. And um, it's kind of who would believe in year one we got a bronze medal in EuroBasket, and year two we're World Cup champions, and now year three we're going to the Olympics. And uh, 
So it's it's been an unbelievable ride so far, and uh, just got to keep it going. So, and with the Olymp, you know, we don't talk about the Olympics very much because I want these guys to embrace what we, the World Cup. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Olympics is going to be something special for basketball in the world. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be special here, especially, you know, Canada. First time back there on the men's side since the year 2000, as you know well. So uh, I'm already very, very excited for it. We're going to fit lots of Canada basketball talk on our our Raptors show uh, here. Gordy, what is next for you? Obviously, you're still the head coach of the, the German national team. There are rumors out there right now about what you're doing next. I don't know if you, this isn't airing until tomorrow. So maybe you can, uh, maybe you can let us know, or do you have to kind of keep a tight lip still? No, I've been, you know, I've been negotiating with the EuroLeague team. I've been offered a job in the EuroLeague, um, but I have a contract with the German national team. I have obligations. So it's a little bit of a complicated situation right now to be, um, you know, I like to coach. On the other hand, um, you know, I, this year we only have two games in February, then the Olympics. So it's, mm-hmm. uh, um, yeah, so it's... Uh, it's been a tough couple of days, actually. <laughs> uh, sorry to hear that that it's been a tough part. I'm sure it's nice to be in demand, though. Uh, last question for you. Another situation that's been tough for the last couple years or so. How are you feeling about your Vancouver Canucks for this season? <laughs> I stayed up and watched them last night. <laughs> I'm a little bit disappointed with the... Um, I th- you know they started the season really well. I think they have a they're trying to create an identity. Um, you know it was tough watching them play last year, except you know especially being a coach, seeing what happened was going on with Bruce Boudreau and the stuff behind the scenes. I think for the players and everybody in the in the um, city it was pretty tough. Um, but I think they've moved on pretty well. Um, uh, no big hockey fan. Um, big, big Sedin fan. You know, I, I'm a big believer in adversity and what the Sedins went when they came to the league with the adversity and all that kind of stuff and, and seeing how they embraced it and, and became the players they play, play players they became. Um, so, yeah, I get too involved with the hockey a little bit, but <laughs> I got to, I got to reel it back a little bit. Yeah, you'll be all um, right. You'll be all right. Yeah. Uh, I can't, can't say I'm rooting for the Canucks to turn it around for you, but uh, yeah, that's just me. No, I like, you know, I like watching Toronto play, but I, I hate, I hate the Leafs, but I like yeah. watching them play. They think they, they're in, they play entertaining hockey, just like the Oilers. So um, yeah. you're on a Raptor show right now. So I, I'm sure the sentiment of not liking the <laughs> Leafs is appreciated from some of our, uh, some of our listeners. Uh, we appreciate this Gordy. Thank you so much for taking the time out and for all the work you've done for, for Canada basketball over the years, in addition to the Germany uh, success. I appreciate it very much. And uh, all it, a big Raptors fan this year with Dennis there and uh, and uh, Darko and uh, it'll be very interesting. Thanks, Gordy. All right, that was Blake's excellent interview. I have to say with uh, Gordy Herbert, uh, Canadian but also head coach of the German national team. Again, congrats to Germany for winning uh, the gold medal this year. It was obviously really really fun to to watch them all tournament run. Um, Blake, we only have like. A minute and a half, really, before we uh, have to go to another break. But, yeah, what was your favorite part of the interview? Yeah, I think the most insightful part of the thing that that was most relevant to me looking ahead to a, a season with Dennis Schroeder is uh, hearing Gordy talk about 
you know, getting to know him and sensing in him a leadership role and giving him the captaincy mm-hmm. while also being able to, you know, understand it and move past a moment like the one we saw when they were down big against Slovenia in a timeout where, um, you know, Gordy tried to yell at Dennis Schroeder and grab him and Dennis took a lot of issue with with that in the moment. Um, and, and it's not to make a bigger deal out of that, but I think, you know, the way Gordy talks about that and the way he still talks about Dennis lets you know the type of, person that that the Raptors are getting here and, and that there is a real competitiveness to that. And yeah, sometimes, you know, Dennis Schroeder has at times in his career been known as someone who's not the easiest to deal with that. Now that has gotten less and less as the years have gone on here. Um, but I think, you know, what you can take from that is that it probably comes from a place of being extremely competitive. And that's something if you are a coach who has a good relationship with a player, uh, you can really harness and, and learn how to get the best out of. Yeah. Um, I think we all can be pretty cognizant of sort of how we speak about people too, right? Because mm-hmm. like you, you put a, you put something like that together, like you know, Dennis is a full, you know, human being, and yeah. I, I think that um, even something like a little social clip obviously it went really viral. But hearing Coach talk about his perspective, all the effort that sort of he's put into building that relationship, and all that that relationship encompasses, I mean, you have to remind yourself that social media is like a very, very brief glimpse. It's like a blink into a person's actual life. But I I also, the other tiny thing was, I want to see footage of uh, Dennis Schroeder and Mo Wagner against Franz. Uh, and see exactly what those those practices are like. Because putting the two brothers against each other, yeah. but then also putting Dennis with the louder, more boisterous brother is, uh, yeah, would have been would have been a nice window into France. Yeah, for sure. Uh, okay, we're going to take that break. I've been your host, Willu. That's Blake Murphy. You're listening to The Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Breaking down the top stories in the NHL every day. The Jeff Mary Show. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Raptors Show. Blake Murphy and Raptors Public's very own Samson Folk. What's going on? So what's the what's the history here? It's like three generations you mean, you, of Raptors you Republic. You've been at Raptors Republic. You know the history. I, I know. I'm, I'm setting up for the audience, Blake. You know, it's not about what we know. It's about what we're going to tell them in this segment. But yeah, no, this is a Zarar if you're out there. And okay. Sam, I'm looking at you guys. All right. Big yeah. assist to you guys. So for anyone who, who actually would want to hear the history, no, actually very, the very true. brief version is um, Sam and Zarar both had their own Raptors blogs back in the day. ESPN was launching. Wait, when you say back in the day, how back in the day are we talking? 2008, I want to say. Okay, okay. Um, and ESPN was launching uh, the True Hoop Network where they wanted one blog for every team and, and we'd all kind of network and, and things like that. And so Sam and Zarrar kind of merged their blogs. They call mm-hmm. it Raptors Republic. Yep. 2009, uh, I was one of the first people they added. So if you think back to that time frame, the first thing I wrote was a breakdown of DeMar's Summer League performance. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to be like, here's a breakdown of the Jermaine O'Neal trade. No. It was uh, not a good idea to add him to uh, to play three seven-footers at the time. Yeah, 2009, uh, DeMar. So then summer 2013 rolls around. And Jonas Valanciunas is having a, a nice little uh, summer league. And oh, I, I get yeah. an email forwarded to me from Zarrar from uh, William Liu, which is, hey, I, I wrote this thing on my blog. Uh, would you, you know, do you accept <laughs> guest articles? Can you give me a little feedback? I would love to contribute to Raptors Republic. And, yeah. and that article was from, uh, from William Liu. Yeah. Uh, and that ends up 
where it ends up. And then, Samson, I have to find your old email because it used to be... Oh, I love this. Samson even goes back far enough that it was a, a Hotmail address at the time. No so I, I don't know. I think this was spring 2017. You are here visiting from Saskatchewan and hit me up like, hey, I'm interested in, in you know, blogging and trying to get into the industry. Let's go for a coffee. And then a little after that, you're, you know, living on my couch for a little bit sure. while you uh, move to the city to try to get going. So, yeah, we kind of have three waves of uh, of Raptors Republic here. And for anyone who, you know, remembers mine and Will's work from there, they do a lot of great stuff still with Samson and Louis yep. Atzman and a lot of other people um, and a really high quality of stuff behind a light paywall where you can you know, yes. support Raptors Republic. And the idea is not only to support that content, but that to make sure when I'm old and put out the pasture on the Blue Jays full time mm. and Will, you're old and cranky and Samson has moved uh. into a different role that the next Samson or, or William Liu uh, has a place to write like Raptors Republic as well. So that's the backstory. So it's very nice to have you, Samson. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. It's uh, I think I did this last year before the season started. But, I mean, it's the biggest show, the biggest basketball show in Canada. So it's always nice to come on and, and chat. And it's cool that the lineage is, you had the, well, I guess Zarar had the podcast for like a moment. Yes. And then you had it, and then Will had it for a long time. Yeah. And now I've had it for a decent amount of time at this point. It's the golden mic in this industry. But honestly, <laughs> like it, it, I think you, you do need a bit of a place where, um, you have the entrenched audience, but you also have the ability to get creative. And, you know, I mean, there was never more creative freedom than when I was at Raptors <laughs> Republic. I'll say that much. I'll tell you, uh, there was a little bit more before we all started the wanting, yeah. to, wanting to get credentialed. Uh, the oh, the wow. battle to first get credentialed when that's I made a, Raptors a, Republic like my first time home. That we had to take story. away a little bit of Zarar's creativity different at that story. point. We have to, we have to officially <laughs> rebrand the Boston Celtics to the Boston Celtics. Uh, okay, before we get to that problematic conversation, though, we are here to talk about Scotty Barnes. Um, and Samson, you've written lots of pieces about Scotty, uh, lots of definitive pieces about Scotty. And more recently, you wrote two pieces. First one where you looked at every single pick and roll that he ran, and we'll go into that, and then we'll go into the post-ups a little bit. But because, obviously, there's this huge discussion about Scotty Barnes and can he run point, all that kind of stuff, very important for any point guard to run a lot of pick and roll. And uh, I'll just start with you here. So you wrote in your piece, I tracked 514 pick-and-roll possessions with Barnes on ball, and he created 114 advantages. Um, first off, take us through how you actually would do a piece like this. Yeah, because I, I just need people to know. Like, if you thought this was as simple as firing up Scotty's synergy page and just yeah. clicking pick-and-roll, no. That oh, this is an Azotan Synergy behavior. or yeah. something like that only gives you the pick-and-roll designation if the play finishes via that pick and roll. Right. So I've got the number here at 127, uh, maybe a little higher. It goes up to 258 if we include passes. So you found like double what was on synergy. So you went back and like through every game last season, just kind of the Scotty minutes and finding whatever you designated as a, as a pick and roll play. Basically, if you ran a pick and roll, you track that. And then an advantage created is kind of like, you know, a lot of people watch DeMar DeRozan on these Raptors. If he made a 19-foot pull-up, you're like, I'm glad we got that bucket, but that's not good process for offense. Good process for offense is creating, like, a makeable shot for a teammate, an easy shot for a teammate, or putting yourself in a really advantageous position to score on your own. And a lot of this, for a lot of people, is, like, paint touches. But is when you incorporate playmaking and paint touches and you kind of look at the types of shots he's created and take into account the talent of who he's getting the ball to, you can kind of get into a place where you say, like, this is an advantage created on a certain possession. And so an advantage can come on a possession where they don't even score. And a non-advantage can come on a possession where they do score. But you're trying to find something that's replicable 
And 19-foot shot making isn't that replicable, but paint touches and layups and three corner three-point shots that you create for other guys are replicable because you keep making those things happen. So that's why I've always wanted to look at advantages created instead of just, like, points per possession. And, yeah, it's, you have to watch every possession, which is why instead of just doing pick and roll, I have the, the post-ups, the isolations, and the pick and roll. And, and, you know, the advantages created idea is important because, again, not just because the data isn't all that high fidelity if we just look at plays finished via the pick and roll because an advantage created could mean, hey, then I made the pass. I created advantage. I made the pass to Will. Will didn't shoot it. That'll be a first. I, I didn't shoot it. So, yeah, me creating advantage. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you'd pick up an offensive foul, but let's let's play this out. You know, so I don't get credit for that as a pick and roll because I passed it off. Yeah. Will, you are then making the next pass. That doesn't get credited because now we're a couple plays down the line. But Samson gets the ball swung to him, hits a three. All of that was possible because of that first advantage created. And, and Samson, before we get into some of the specifics with this, um, I, how much is that idea and that way of thinking about how an offensive possession progresses, um, you know, kind of what new head coach Darko Ryakovich is getting at when he talks about 0.5 basketball? I think, yeah, you're trying to mine advantages as much as possible on the floor, and you're trying to put your team in a really good position to succeed. And there are some players who are undeniable. They're superstars. They create, like, a big advantage. And then the defense responds. I think the best example is that how – LeBron James, as a point forward, kind of broke basketball with the skip pass to the corner. The velocity of it, the point of, like, he had to put hardly any arc on it, and the fact that he was so dangerous as a scorer. And then teams started utilizing the weak side zone more so they could spy and kind of hawk on that pass. And teams started being more clever about weak side zones. And then so what you're doing is you're trying to find newer advantages. And Darko, the .5 basketball thing, which other coaches have talked about, of course, is about taking a small advantage and through making a quick decision and making the right decision, you can create into a larger advantage and these things will compound and expand upon once each other. So that's kind of like the, the idea behind 0.5 basketball. Okay. I, I like this. This is this is really good uh, basis in theory. Um, right now with what we saw from Scotty last season, um, where are his limitations, where are his strengths? When we're talking about him running pick and roll. Sorry, before we get to, to set that question up, you mentioned off the top, Will, that uh, in the quote from the piece, of those 514 pick and roll possessions, um, Scotty Barnes created an advantage 22% of the time. And Samson, you used the term only. This is obviously not something that we have readily available data for, and maybe someone doesn't even care about the actual numbers. But when we say, hey, a little less than a quarter of the time he was creating an advantage in a pick and roll, before we get into some of the limitations, in your estimation, that that's probably not... Uh, good enough number to, to to justify 500 pick and roll possession yet. Yeah, you probably want, if a guy's going to be, because I think he was 39th in overall uh, frequency for pick mm -hmm. and roll, but if you want a guy running a ton of pick and rolls, you probably want to be at least above like 35% advantages created. And some of the best players, you're probably looking between like 45 and 55%. It's just really inherent that they get downhill, they have a pull-up threat available to them, they collapse the defense, they put the defense in like the cat and mouse game of the weak side zone, or they force the big man to step up, or they're creating that two-on-one possession in the pick-and-roll situation with the roller. And those types of things are so easy. But Scotty, what he had to navigate is the fact that a lot of his bigs don't shoot, and a lot of teams are either going under the screen, thus negating it, or just switching the screen, thus negating it, putting him into a lot of isolation situations, or putting him into situations where he just has to pass out mm -hmm. and move the play along. So... He, he has a lot of work to do, and the Raptors also have to provide a better context for pick-and-roll ball handlers in, in general. Okay, so uh, tangibly right now, 
what can the team do under this current context in terms of the teammates and also sort of for him long-term skill-wise, what are those jumps that need to be made so that he can create more of those advantages on his own regardless of what the person knows around him? I don't even think the shooting is the most important part to okay. be dangerous. I think it's the handle because DeMar DeRozan is a really easy comp for you see a guy who utilizes his handle to re-screen guys lower in the court. And mm. Scotty doesn't have the the shiftiness or the handle to comfortably move a guy, position him. You know, like that's the whole point of using yeah. your your handle is positioning a player so that you can come off the screen clean and they get caught. Scotty lets guys get into him. He's has a tough time creating space. And so he doesn't have as easy a time getting to re-screens in snug pick and rolls. And you could look at a guy like Pascal even, who if if they switch it. He's so comfortable as a scorer, he can go into isolation and score. And though, So you're scoring derived out of the pick and roll, but in an isolation. Or you can go back into a snug pick and roll where you kind of shrink the floor, and then you can still create that two-on-one situation. So I think the handle for Scotty is the most important. But he's working on everything, right? Like mm-hmm. yeah. we saw in the, the preseason games, like it's catch high, keep high for his three-point stuff. The dip isn't as low. It's a quicker release, at least in the catch-and-shoot stuff. Like he's working on everything. It's just the handle and the shot need to be much better to be a vaunted pick and roll creator. So in addition to going through all of these plays yourself uh, and the, these, to be clear, are rewatches and probably a lot of times your third watch of, uh, of a, a game or a certain possession or whatever. Um, you also talk to scouts around the league for this piece and, you know, to be, to be a little reductive, you know, one scout said to you, well, you just switch or you go under and, and either one is fine. And I think when we hear that a team is willing to go under on a pick and roll, like you, like you kind of, uh, parried there, um, well, add a mid-range pull-up jumper is how you you compete with that. Now, the that uh, that willingness for a defense to switch, um, obviously the handle is going to be a part of that just in terms of who you can break down and how you can rescreen. Um, but what can he do to make the switching of the pick and roll uh, a little more difficult for a defense? If you engage a switch really quickly, the defense doesn't have time to load up as often. Like the team, de- team defense, team switch at the point of attack but it comes a little later from a team concept. Like everybody, you switch, and then since we've had so much like helocentric offense, a lot of people, you take that breath, you settle, and then the defense loads up because the guy's like dribbling back out, he's sizing up. Mm. But if Scotty just attacks a little bit quicker, turning the corner, put a shoulder into a guy, and then kind of like, you know, use the escape dribble to assess, there's going to be more opportunities for cuts, particularly from the 45, something that Chris Boucher and Precious are really great at. And there's going to be opportunities to kind of put the defense on the back foot a little bit more often. Can you explain what you mean by uh, cut from the 45 for someone who doesn't know that terminology? So basically the, the 45 is like the 45 degrees. So just imagine the, the corner of the paint, like the top corner, just extend that out to the sideline and making a cut from a 45 degree angle towards the basket. I wasn't very good at geometry. Yeah, it's sorry. Yeah, we had a discussion yesterday about Pythagorean wins. I yeah. believe this directly ties to that. Pythagoras didn't know ball. That's, well, that's the part that's missing there. Maybe not. Um, so I, I think one thing that was also really interesting here in terms of um, thinking about Scotty's pick and roll is obviously there's a partner that you have to mm-hmm. you know screen and uh, a large part of sort of your effectiveness is sort of what they do. And you broke down the numbers here in terms of what it looks like when he runs it with Christian, with Pascal, with Fred from last year. Obviously, he's gone. And then Jakob Pertl. Um, well, I'll start with, I guess, the more concerning part and maybe work our way to the more promising part. But it didn't seem like he had that much... Um, well, the points per chance with Jakob Pertl when Scotty ran it was 0.675. 
Um, what did you see from the film? And that's his second most common pick and roll partner too. So, yeah. you know, right. familiarity, if you were going to use the term chemistry there, maybe explain some of it initially, but that's a, a pretty, with what we're talking about, it's one of the largest samples there. Yeah, when we look at, we can look at Pascal's numbers. He and Pascal ran really efficient pick and rolls, but a lot of it wasn't what you think a pick and roll looks like. It's that they ran a pick and roll, Pascal got Scotty's <laughs> defender on him and then scored out of it. And Pascal's a really great scorer. What happens with Jakob is they get that same switch and neither Scotty nor Jakob are gifted enough scorers to make teams pay. Okay. So the, the switching aspect of it is really difficult. And the reason why that's different with Christian is Christian is a little bit more of a vertical threat. Anybody who's watched Scotty knows he likes to kind of push the envelope with guys with these massive catch radiuses that they can go up and get it. He can hit Coloco. And especially since Scotty, like utilizing a high pickup and these higher release points as mm -hmm. a passer, there's like a more natural connection there. But also, they ran more drag screens in transition. They ran more step-up screens between Coloco. Like, Jakob, in a lot of his possessions, just because, again, Nick Nurse liked to use Jakob in the high post the same way that Darko did, you use these double drags to initiate these, like, Chicago actions and initiate these situations where you're running the ball through Jakob in the high post. But when you bring two screeners into it, you're just bringing more clunk to mm -hmm. where Scotty right. is. And he's not going to shoot over it or turn the corner, really. So you're just kind of, like, um, creating this really gluttonous, gross mass at the top of the, at the, top of the arc. Yeah. And so I don't think they utilize the Jakob-Scotty pick-and-roll as best they could, but I also don't think there's a lot of inherent advantages there either. So with respect to Christian being his most effective, or may, Pascal the most effective, but, but Christian the most effective where we think of a, a more traditional pick and roll, um, you know, we haven't seen Christian Coloco in camp yet. We don't know, and we're probably not going to know what the status of that is until he's closer to a return. Um, but what can we learn from that in terms of how to continue to better use Scotty Barnes in, in these situations? And I think of, you know, whether Chris Boucher has generally been much more of a pick and pop kind of screener than, than a pick and roll kind of screener, but he's another guy who has that vertical element that we've seen Scotty try to pick out a couple times in the preseason here. Uh, I wonder too how much of what you what you saw was just the quality of screen and the physicality of it that Christian Coloco sets versus some of these other guys who are more conditioned, I think, to slip or pop early, whereas Christian Coloco, maybe just the the youngness to him, maybe just the, the 905 hammering it in, but was a much more physical screener before taking off toward the rim. Yeah, like it's a huge difference. A lot of people remember like Houston versus Golden State when you would see all they're doing is guys are walking up to the action screening. It wasn't really screening. They're just walking and initiating the switch and then yeah. Clay Thompson has to guard James Harden or something or Steph has to guard, you know, James Harden. And the Raptors, despite not having the same scoring talent, a lot of their screening kind of emulated that. It's like Thad Young like walks up there. He kind of rocks up like, hey, we're trying to initiate a switch. And then Scotty's like, great, I have basically the same defender on me, and we did this. Whereas Christian is like, I'm going to plant this thing, man. Let's go <laughs> do something about it. Okay. And um, maybe it's like that, that younger man, Gusto, or whatever. And Pascal, Pascal didn't really care to put down good screens either. But that's because Pascal is like, get me the switch. I'm going to go get us a bucket. And then Fred is also not planting that many screens because he's running ghost screens. Ghost. Yeah. 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 It is almost Halloween. Yeah, spooky. Yeah. Real spooky. You're going to go as a ghost screen, boy? I, I last year around it Halloween, I don't know if it's brand. in this notebook or if it's in a different notebook, but okay. I, I drew a ghost screen. Uh, I drew the play up on like a whiteboard and it was just ghosts running pick and roll. You uh, sent that to me. I remember yeah. that. Yeah, I was in uh, I was in Cuba at the time. 
Yeah. It was like my little window between Blue Jays and uh, and Raptors. Your... Yeah, they gave you two days or whatever. Yeah, yeah so we're not going to talk about that element of it. Um, so you mentioned Fred as well, not being uh, not being someone who plants the screen because they're, they're going to do more of that, you know, ghost screen uh, action instead. And the idea being, you know, again, to, to either generate a switch or ideally, you know, that's Fred popping open for a quick pick and pop three. Um, what is the Raptors' capacity going to be to run big, small pick and roll this year without a guy like Fred, without a guy like Kyle Lowry, because that's it's not only been an effective play for them going back to Pascal Fred, going back to DeMar Kyle, but it's also been just like a really effective crunch time option for them. Uh, obviously, they don't have Kyle. They don't have Fred. Dennis Schroeder's in there. What What is the capacity going to be? And, and I'm thinking specifically with the ball in Scotty's hands to run some big, small pick and roll. They ran 23. I know I didn't put it in the piece, but they ran 23 with Gary and Scotty. And they finished at a point per possession, which is, it's not great. It's not fantastic. It's not bad either. And I think that partnership in particular has a lot of potential to grow into something meaningful. I think that's probably what you can expect to see between Scotty and Pascal. And I, I do think in crunch time, you're going to see a lot of Scotty Pascal stuff as well. But th- with Dennis during the largest part of the game and during some of these like ho-hum games, I think there's going to be a lot there because when teams are catching up to the ghost screen, usually they're doing it in the form of a closeout because like the ghost screener, you're like shuffling your feet and then you're bursting out of the action into space and the pass is coming. We, we even saw one in the collection of film I put out there that you can see Wancho did it for Scotty last year. And Scotty puts the pass right on the mark. He's really talented in that way. But Dennis, if the teams work to close out on him, He's going to get into the paint. He's going to create a paint touch out of that. But if teams are kind of like cutting into the paint to wall it off and not really respecting the shot, I think that they're probably not going to be able to create a lot. They might have to go back to like a pitch play between Dennis and Scotty where it's a lot easier at the point of attack now because Dennis's defender went so low. Like that's kind of the whole idea of the rescreen. You get the head of steam yeah. kind of already before the guy's back in position to, to switch around. Yeah, that's exactly it. There's there's always stuff they can counter to. But as far as the inherent initial advantage, I don't think they'll be able to emulate anything close to what they did last year with that play. Yeah, great deal. This is really great detail. I really want to continue talking about pick and rolls, but we should also talk about post-ups yeah. at some point. I mean, we do have the hour. We have some other stuff for the second half of this hour, right. but we can always scrap that to just talk more about pick and roll or if you wanted to go to the... To the DHO high post angle. You know what? Uh, you go wherever you want, Well, All right. You know what? As the host, I'm going to make the executive decision. <laughs> We're going to talk about after this break. What about Scotty as a screener? I know this wasn't as much of um, the focus on the piece, but we saw it in the Chicago game how effective he was um, when he was that playmaking hub at the top of the floor. We saw it at points last season as well. Um, and the num- the numbers were very good in a small sample last yeah, year. So yeah, yeah. we're talking about, you know, when he's on, on the handle side, like, hey, one point per possession is, is we're okay with that. That's something to build off of. When he was the screener, it was not a large number of possessions, but we're talking about 1.25 points per possession. That is a, yeah, like that's that. a high yield play. And I think, you know, if I'm thinking back, at least anecdotally, that stuff looked really good. He's a good screener. Um, you know, you talk about catch radius. He's not a particularly vertical over the top guy, but he does have a huge wingspan and good hands. Um, what do you uh, look more of the growth and more of the focus is going to be on with the ball in his hands. But do you see potential for it to expand with him as a screener as well? I, I love that spot for Scotty. It's my favorite of anything he does. And I, like I said, this, I was talking to my friend Trey on, our podcast and pull up Trey. Yeah, if nice plug. Slick. If, <laughs> if Scotty were on the Warriors and got to play with Steph, 
and Clay and guys like that, and they, he, he was surrounded by shooting with really great split action, he, in his sleep, could average like 20 and 6. Yeah. Like, he really could get there so easily because you see so many possessions where Draymond, they overload on the shooters on the split action. He puts the ball down. It's like, man, if he would just attack the rim. Mm. And then everyone thinks of like, oh, hmm, who looks good attacking the rim? Scotty. <laughs> and there's also the short roll stuff that I know short rolling bigs are maybe a little bit fetishized too much now. But like when you think of a short roll big, you think of a guy who can quickly make reads, passes really well, and has great touch in like the short mid range. Scotty, yeah, exactly. Oh. <laughs> but Scotty checks all the boxes, right? And he also can like extend the play with a dribble. If you were surrounded by, like, a glut of super talented guards, I think that would be just incredible. I know this point Scotty thing is, like, really popular, but I think his skill set pairs so well with, like, talented guards that that's whatever happens this season and into the future, mm. that's kind of what, who I want to see Scotty playing with. All right. I mean, I feel like that's where, if you, for example, with the Pascal trade um, talks that happened in the summertime, you know, when you saw those kind of reports about, like, maybe you make a swap with Atlanta, maybe you make a swap with Indiana. Those are the teams that do have that kind of, like, quality of depth in terms of at least guard prospects um, where you could potentially sort of realign your team. But, I mean, I wonder when the front office will get to that point, if they do get to that point, where they make that kind of decision. Yeah, it's it's similar to our, our conversation about Dennis Schroeder earlier and what exactly a, a two-year contract means for Dennis Schroeder on a team that still doesn't have a lot of guard play. And my answer to that question, Samson, was... I think it's a little bit of a, a bridge of, well, let's figure it out and let's see where it goes with Scotty in a couple different roles and let's, you know, make that decision on if they don't draft and develop, uh, which at this point in a two-year window uh, with not having their pick this year, maybe. I don't think draft and develop is going to be the path to uh, a point guard for them, but maybe you have a, a better idea of specifically what type of guard, what skill set you're looking for if it is, you know, two years from now when you're you're making a splashier than a mid-level exception kind of addition. Dame would be good. <laughs> yeah, Dame would have been cool. Um, yeah, I yeah. think you're, you're looking at a guard who creates a lot of advantages. Like Basically, any type of guard who can pair driving prowess with shooting prowess, and especially like if you look at, I know Sabonis and Scotty are very different players, but the way that Jamal Murray and De'Aaron Fox play off of these really quick-thinking, rapid-processing bigs and are willing to cut... If you get a guard who's willing to like dart and dash around Scotty, and Scotty also has the ability and potential to take these into keeper plays and score in isolation and use guard adjacent skills as well, that pairing I think is so dangerous. And it also like you put Scotty in a situation. I reference him to Kyle Lowry all the time because when the ball came back to Kyle after the defense was scrambled, Kyle always found the most like the most efficient pass. It was Sometimes the defense is recovering to where they think the pass is going. And then all of a sudden, like, Kyle makes that short side pass to surge for, like, a two-foot layup. And you're like, oh, yeah, that pass was there the whole time. Not that many players see it, but Scotty spies those out. So if he has somebody to break apart the defense for him, the ball comes back to him, he'll always find the right pass. So I love his playmaking against broken defenses. And I just want to see, you know, a, a guard who can break apart defenses repeatedly with, like, easy pick-and-roll possessions and Scotty to kind of pick apart that stuff on the back end. So whatever that looks like. Yeah, be nice to have one of <laughs> yeah, those for I a was, lot of reasons. I was going to say, it, yeah. it, uh, it is definitely good wishful thinking. But, I mean, honestly, long-term planning-wise, like that, that does make a yeah, lot of like, sense. Yeah, like Vision 6-9 is about creating these advantages by having size and length and offensive skill at a lot of different positions. But the idea, I don't think anyone has ever been like, well, also, we don't ever need guard play. Yeah. I think guard play would take those. If you have those advantages, 2-3-4 and even 2-3-4-5, 
a really good guard play can kind of exponentially help you take advantage of, of those advantages at, at different spots by doing the things you're saying by, to our earlier conversation with Dennis, initiating sets with, with pace and with, you know, intention and things like that. And all those little advantages we're talking about, creating them earlier and then have, being better able to kind of help them cascade into larger ones. All right. We are going to take a break because I want to save enough time to talk about Scotty's post-ups as well. Uh, but I've been your host, Willow. You've been listening to The Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. The most opinionated Maple Leaf show out there. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. I'm your host, William Lou. Continue to be joined by Blake Murphy and his blog son, Samson Folk. It's okay. We're both his blog, blog sons. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess if he's the blog son, what does that make you? Because you were at you one two, point. You got two sons. I mean, yeah. You know, this is the thing people do is have uh, two sons like me and my brother. Shouts to George. Uh, hope oh, you're yeah, studying for your I have, midterms I have two in brothers. McGill. I should know how this works. <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. Um, so, yeah, we were going to talk about post-ups. Uh, for Scotty Barnes because we went into really great depth about the pick and roll play. Samson, you also watched all his post-ups. You might have seen Scotty more than anybody outside of uh, Asshole Town. Scotty, and Scotty is aware of this, by the way. Oh, wait, so, hold on, wait, hold on. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What's the backstory there? It's just players, they have, like, teams. Yeah. Players read stuff. Players, like, coaches read stuff. Scouts read stuff. Ah. Uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, the scouts reading stuff is, like, a real – and I, I – think we're going to get to a great quote that you had about Scotty's post-ups in here. But part of the reason that scouts talk to you and scouts will contribute to your piece anonymously, of course, because they're scouts and they, they have to do it that way is like, yeah, well, you don't, the price of entry is doing really good work that a scout would appreciate and maybe makes their job a little, not easier because they're still going to go through all the video and stuff like that, but that they appreciate from a basketball intellectual level. But yeah, sometimes that stuff filters down, like Impressive. certainly like, I remember one time Sergio Scariola was mad at me for a piece that I wrote because I claimed that he didn't invent the Spain pick and roll because uh, I found some, like, grainy footage from, like, the uh, 80s of it being used. Anyway, it's a funny thing, and it yeah, ends yeah. up being a good conversation. Sure. But, yeah, in this case, Samson's going to be humble about it, but it trickles down to Scotty, and at some point, Scotty's like, man, that's a that's a lot of work. Wasn't uh, It was a Greek guy who did the Spain pick and roll, wasn't he? Like, a Greek coach? Yeah, I want to say Probably. it was Lithuania way, way back as oh, well. I, I have it in the piece if I went back and looked at it. Yeah. Well, it, regardless, yeah, it's you, you try and do good work because, you know, Will mentioned it at the start, but these are like definitive pieces. And I did an every possession piece in his rookie season, and that was people like that one a lot. And I looked at all of his passes last year to figure out, you know, advantage to assist. Like, are guys making shots after you give them the ball, or are you giving these guys like buckets? And, Scotty, for example, was a guy who passed players into makes at a higher advantage rate than Draymond Green and a higher advantage rate than Jason Tatum, for example. And so paying attention to, like, the minutia of how things happen is kind of how you figure out players' tendencies and whether the Raptors are suffering because, like, a scout is seeing all of this laid out by subscribing to Raptors Republic. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, they like they like the work. Lots of people do, so it's really nice. There's an easy way to resolve that too, is you just bring it in house. Pay, yeah. pay up. Yeah. Cut the check. Hey, listen. Um, 
No, we're, but we're I think not, it, we are not above that at yeah. this point. But it's also like many times I've advocated for you to be 905 GM. Yeah, yeah, actually, you, you fully should be 905 GM. I mean, like, the current 905 GM used to be a Sports Illustrated basketball features writer, Luke Wynn. Yes, that's right. Shout out to Luke. I'll say that, yes, I am going to a civil lawsuit with the Raptors because they (laughs) they stole my Google Drive information. Yes. Uh, Okay, so the post-ups, though. Yeah, let's go. The numbers that you get into there, the post-up is a – it's interesting because in the modern NBA, the post-up has been knocked a little bit, and I think similar to, oh, the death of the mid-range, it's been a little misunderstood in that – the mid-range isn't dead. It's the space for superstars that you have to have to counter defenses. The post-up isn't dead. It's just been a, a lot more effective used as a passing hub than uh, direct, hey, I'm going to back my guy down. And, um, you know, we look at these Scotty Barnes post-up numbers, and he's he's shy of a point per possession posting up as a scorer. But when you start to look at what he's doing passing out of the post-ups, that's 1.23 points per chance. Um, That's a pretty robust number. What do you like about Scotty Barnes' ability to help teammates from the post position? Well, just as a quick thing too, like the Raptors as a whole, when they can pass out of the post, they're really good. This was a number that Caitlin Cooper, the best basketball writer in the world, brought up that in 2021-22, the most efficient play for the Raptors in the half court was a pass out of the post. Out of everything they ran, pick and roll, whatever, it's like a pass out of the post created the highest points Without for a big man. Yeah. I mean, and they're just like, hey. They got, the, they got Pascal. They, like that, yeah. yeah. They target cross matches. Yeah. They do their thing. But the reason why the post is so important and difficult to guard is that a lot of defenders now are really used to guarding from the point of attack point of view. So when you reverse their the fundamentals of how they guard and how they help, you can actually create a lot of coverage mistakes by working through the post. That's why I think you see teams are so easily picked apart by Nikola Jokic and why Sacramento, despite having, you know, like if you look at the sum of their parts, you know, those sayings, et cetera, there was a team that accomplished like an unbelievable offense just by kind of inferring a lot of other teams' defensive principles and just working through like strictly dribble handoffs with willing and meaningful guards. And I think something to remember, too, is like when we talk about spacing, like spacing is a defensive thing as well, where the lower on a, and you talked about earlier, you know, rescreening after an initial screen lower on the floor. And by obviously an offense wants as much space as possible. You're trying to space horizontally. You're trying to now space vertically. And that's why guys take 30 foot shots and stuff. But if you can cramp up a defense and you could still be effective in that, well, you can't help from underneath the basket two rows into the seats right if you are posting up a certain way like yeah if a guy turns middle you can base go and come from the other side but there are certain things you can't do defensively to help on that part of the floor as well yeah and so the big thing with scotty being able to be dangerous in the post is that he has really great touch in the short mid range left hand right hand whatever it needs to be and teams when you're that good in the middle of the floor this was the crux of why the raptors were so good to start the season offensively Last season was Pascal got off to a tear. And while teams will try to funnel guys into the middle of the floor, like in lock and trail defense and drop defense in the pick and roll, that's with like a head of steam going into the defense. But defenses are really uncomfortable when you're kind of pacing yourself in the middle of the floor with the live dribble, something we see Pascal do a lot. And teams aren't sure if they want to help one pass away from the top, which is really dangerous if there's a shooter there. And they really don't want to help from the bottom because it opens up the dunker spot. And so what happened a lot of times is that Scotty as a passer was so dangerous because he can get into the paint whenever he wants as a post-up threat, especially since the he was predominantly doing it against cross matches, just feasting and beasting on these smaller guys. 
And when he got that step up from the big man, he could make like any type of pass, be it a lob or a bounce pass to the dunker spot. And that's a wide open layup. And then if the guy in the middle who's hanging out, you know, typically they play pack line defense against Scotty and Pascal, which means there's four guys in the paint, like have a foot in the paint, and then the defender guarding you. Like it's very cramped. And so teams will drop a guy down to cover the big who left his man stepping up, and then it opens up a corner three. Like there's typically something to be gained if you can get the bottom man to step up. But a lot of times teams are packing the paint so much that they're working with like the double from the top, or they don't even have to double at all because they don't really fear the shooting on the rest of the court. But the point is, Scotty is really good working in tight spaces. He's very comfortable with physicality. He's very comfortable finishing through physicality, and he's one of the best passers at his size in the world, and that just makes for a really meaningful post-up offense. Right. I mean, I wanted to touch on some of the stats you put into the piece about his finishing in particular. I mean, things that stand out, 55% on hook shots. It's one of the best marks in the league, right, among anyone with volume? So I don't have those numbers this season, but Sports Info Solutions tracked that through his first 61 games in his rookie season where he was at 57.1%, which was third. So if you think that, like, oh, he was 20 of 36 on his contested hook shots this year, which is a smallish number, you can also reference, like, a big number from the past year as well. This is a guy who's just hit contested hook shots whenever he's from the moment he's entered into the league. And so I tracked this year's contested hook shots. Sports Info Solutions tracked last year's contested hook shots, and the range is 57% and 55%. So he's just efficient and has tremendous touch there. I mean, I didn't see the breakdown, so I wanted to ask you here, like, did it, did it matter if it was, like, mostly right-handed, left-handed? Is it, like, he, does he have touch with both hands? Is what I'm saying. He has touch with both hands, yes, but he was more successful on the left block turning over and using his right hand. But he's, like, he never gets blocked. He's so talented at manipulating his pickup point. That's why you see a lot yeah. of bigs. Like, Scotty does not get blocked very often. You see guys who get blocked all the time. It's because they have the low pickup. They have a load, and they allow the help side defense to time him up. Right. And Scotty doesn't allow you to time him up. There's even one possession where he's being guarded by Paolo Moncaro, and he scoops with his right hand without bringing the ball to his left hand, just scoops <laughs> it against his body and, like, muscles it up to his head, gathers and finishes over top. And Scotty is like, it's like he has a homing beacon, man. He just always manages. His legs can be spindly wherever, but he always manages to square himself to the basket, even if... Like, his, his catalog of finishes are so ridiculous where he's spinning around, finding the basket in air, and just pushing the shot in. His touch is so innate and so incredible there. Like, the difficulty of the shots he's making, they look absurd, which is why I think fans correctly, when you see him dominate towards the end of the game, they're like, just give him the ball and he'll do all that kind of stuff because he does seem inevitable when he's finishing in those areas. But his touch and his, his ability to square himself to the basket is astounding and, and that's not just obviously on the hook shots or, or just on post-ups he shot 66 percent at the rim overall last year and that's not you know an elite number that that's about average for a, a power forward type but the degree of difficulty like you said on those shots these are not you are finishing plays from the dunker spot very often they are often self-created they are often against a lot of defensive attention and, and i wonder samson when you see that level of success on difficult shots inside um the potential for that to on a get more efficient as he gets more experience or b the fact that he's able to do it against difficult defense just helps our ability to project that ahead and scale it basically if he has a larger role i i do think it's maybe i don't know how much higher you can go on hook shots than like 57 50 like contested ones it's 
that's really, really high percentages. But as far as like scalability and comfortability in the end of games, that's the important stuff is like you during a long, like during lots of the parts of the games, you want to just create easy looks. And that's why a lot of offense can look formulaic for the however long. They can look like, okay, you're getting to this spot. The defense has to make a response. But the end of games are hellacious. Mm. Teams will throw a lot of different things at you and they're trying to create a different offensive response with their new and unique defensive response. And Scotty being able to kind of like muck it up nine feet away from the basket and always find himself going like between 50 and 60% from the field is something that like you can take solace in. We can just throw it into this guy if things get nasty and he might be able to put the ball in the bucket, which is, you know, that's kind of like the ISO ethos that a lot of teams go to late in games. And Scotty also, it helps that if teams do crowd that, you know he's going to pick out the right pass. So I love it as like a late option, um, like late game thing. Too. Free throws are efficient too. Yep. I, I guess this is too simplistic, especially given the context of the discussion we're having, but why don't why didn't we just do that? Especially because, you know, we sucked in crunch time last year. Sorry, so, I'm here to be the everyman right no, now. No, man. It's a, it, it is a, <laughs> I don't want to make you spill your water question. out, but like, why didn't we just do that? I mean, my guess would be okay. that you don't know for certain, just like we're talking about clean end of season numbers here and i don't know how much you're redoing that but also you know it's uh yeah you should have taken a look at it i have a framework thing so it's kind of like this is why shooting is so important is one pass Uh away there's this there's this play you can look at where darren fox is harassing scotty's post up and i'm always impressed when guys can keep their dribble alive and get a you know a double to kind of screw off pascal was really good at it like that half turn Mm -hmm. and then you reassess and then you go back to your isolation but Scotty fights off De'Aaron Fox twice. And then eventually De'Aaron finally doubles after like six seconds of just annoying him. And then Fred catches the ball, I think like 27 feet away from the basket, has to pump and make a a mid-range jumper with I think like three seconds left on the shot clock. It's that teams, the Raptors don't have enough shooting around the floor to make the other team worry about that one pass away. Mm. And they, and like, for example, if they don't have a ton of shooting this season, they they what can do you mean bring. If? Sorry, pardon. what's that? So what do you mean if? <laughs> oh yeah, sorry. Sorry. So, but the thing is, right, is like if you have two shooters on the floor, and maybe it's like you're finishing the right, game right. with Gary, and you put Gary one pass away, and you put, let's say, OG in the opposite corner for spacing reasons, right? So if a guy does drop down, if you help from the bottom, then OG is available in the corner for that shot. It's like where everyone else is is being helped off of. And so that's the thing is that, like, Scotty, while he can make contested hook shots in the paint, typically they were contested by one player. It gets a lot hairier when they're contested by two players. Right. And teams also, this is why it's a five-on-five, a team sport, is, like, you can force the ball out of a guy's hands in the post. Yeah. It's, it's harder to do above the break because there's more room to swim and kind of figure out your, what you're doing. But in the post, you can really force the ball out of somebody's hands with, like, hard doubles and... If your team can't make the open three, the Raptors were the third worst shooting team above the break last season, have been one of the worst three-point shooting teams in the league for a couple years now, bottom third the last three. It's just like the team is getting the ball out of the dangerous guy's hands into less dangerous players' hands. And you don't want your late-game offense to go into the hands of, like, Juancho Hernan Gomez. I mean, think about what you're trying to accomplish defensively, right? Like, Like, put yourself now in the Raptors' defense, which has been generally pretty good even even with some of the 
you know, shortcomings of the, the trappy style defense is like, yeah, a huge part of that was predicated on getting the ball away from the best players. And hey, if the fourth guy on the floor beats you, then so be it. So you have to be aware that that is what a defense wants you to do. And you have to kind of decide at which point is it, hey, I'm being stubborn trying to get what I want versus we got to take what the defense wants us to take. Yeah, Thaddeus Young made Joel Embiid like touch the ground and hit a jumper. <laughs> but you don't want Thaddeus Young to have the ball repeatedly all the time. <laughs> because you force the ball out of somebody's hands. It's, it's tough to navigate. Like, having a bunch of good players is a fantastic thing for basketball, as it turns out. Having even some capable shooters would be great. By the way, uh, as Sam said, you, we're not going to get too deep into this, but you would ask me, um, you know, hey, can you pull some numbers on teams that shoot as poorly as the Raptors and, and have success? So last year, the Raptors shot 33.5% on threes. That is by far the worst any team that finished 500 has shot on threes in the last half decade. Uh, if we go back even a decade, there are only a handful of teams that have won 45 games while shooting under 35% on threes, and almost all of them had uh, Harden, Peak, Westbrook, or LeBron James. Okay. Uh, and the only ones who didn't were very tippy top of the league defensively. Uh, so 2015, 2016, Heat and Celtics, uh, the grit and grind Grizzlies. Like you either have to have an all-time offensive lead piece or be a top three defense to survive uh, not shooting that well on three. So congratulations to last year's Raptors, oh, I guess, for doing yeah. it at 33.5%. But yeah, that percentage is going to have to come up no matter how much we like the pick and roll progression or the post-up progression of a Scotty Barnes or other players. Yeah, yeah. If you if you allow other teams to like pester your guys with impunity, <laughs> helping off of other players... I mean, you you look at Pascal after some of these games. He's like, damn, man, like this was tough. It's <laughs> yeah. hard to make it work. And Scotty, if they don't bring in more players who are better for his play style, he's gonna go through all the like I said it in the you know in the video essay I did for that. But it's like if they're going to make Scotty work out of the exact same phone booth as Pascal, they're going to encourage the exact same type of uh, development as Pascal and Pascal's development into a guy who kind of slows the pace down and goes into isolations and works out of the mid-range so he can bring the bottom defender up because they don't have above-the-break shooting, is now being like, oh, we have to see how this guy works in a .5 offense. Right. So it's like you have to be intentional in what you're asking your players to do, and you have to put the context around them that allows them to develop in a way that you think is like the, the best going forward. And they, I just think it has to be better for Scotty because it never was for Pascal, basically. Hmm. Um, I have to say, especially looking at these that's numbers. That's a sobering <laughs> thought to pivot off of, it. Eh? Uh, no, it's fine, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, no, I was going to say, it, looking at the numbers you presented here in terms of, like, bad three-point shooting and also winning basketball and, and sort of all these stars that have sort of enabled sort of that to happen, sort of carried it on their own, I got to say, like, you have to give Nick a little bit of credit for coming up with this, like, almost like a gimmicky, but also like a very, like, polarized way to play where they're able to just generate so many more advantages and possessions than their opponents because... Without that, I, I do wonder. Like, even this year, if they're not going to be as all-out trying to just win the possession battle all the time, how are you going to replicate some of these? You're a Liverpool fan. Yes. Klopp. They ran more miles than, like, anybody else. It yeah, had, yeah. It, 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 they achieved something new. They found a way to do it. They obviously they reached a much higher ceiling than the Raptors. <laughs> but it wore yeah. thin. Yeah. Like, it wasn't sustainable. Players paid for it with, you know, there's a, a physical toll being paid. I think um, my friend Evan Golberto brought that up. He's If anybody watched, like, YouTube highlights, Evan Golberto's channel is, like, the one where it's, like, yes. Steph Curry, elite sharpshooter with, like, 8 million views. Um, but anyway, uh, that's his comp that he came up with, and I think it's apt. Is like, 
you can scheme up as many things as you want and you can find success, but there's always that human side of it is like, man, these guys are running a lot. Like 38 minutes every single game for yeah. two and a half years is a lot. Shocker that the crunch time offense really, really <laughs> struggled. In addition to the other shortcomings, if you are playing four and five and six minutes more than your opponents every game, yeah. uh, that's tough. By the way, last year's uh, shooting differential was so plus 750 shooting possessions last year for the Raptors. So they took 750 more shots or free throw trips to the line than their the opponent. Next, to put that into context, I think the next closest was like 300 something. The next closest ever is 604, and the Raptors were plus 750. Yeah. All-time gimmick team. But, it, you know, That's the gimmick that we needed plus to do. That's 10 though. per game. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know. I mean, typically, you always talked about it, especially when you look at, you know, the old style of, like, play analysis. You look at the box, and you're like, well, you took a lot more shots than your opponent. You won the possession battle. You should win the game most times. That just didn't happen with us last year. But, but that's, I mean, again, though, they did finish 500 with a, an historically bad three-point percentage and yeah. half-court offense. Like, they still, yeah. like, 500 is not the bar. It's not what anyone's happy about. It's not what the goal is entering any any season for most teams. But they still got to 500 doing all of these, like, almost the most corner threes allowed ever. Really bad rim defense. One of the worst three-point shooting marks ever for a decent team. Like, I think that that... That tells you how weird this this team has been the last couple of years, but it also tells you that like there was some stuff going right that the, that is still there to build on too. And it's kind of I had a piece up at sports.ca today about some of the changes we're going to see defensively to a more conservative style. And it's not that long ago that that crazy breakneck style that allowed a ton of corner threes produced the third best defense we've seen in like the last decade in right. the NBA. So right. there is. These are challenges and they're negatives about the last couple of years and what you're entering the season with, but there is there is a lot of stuff there to build upon as well. Yeah. yeah. The only thing I would say to the previous comparison, the Liverpool thing, is to defend my squad. You're, we're, you're losing we're, me on that we're, one. We're, Liverpool's we're, my we're favorite like prep team as well. Can you put it in wrestling so you terms know, or something? You, you know we have the talent to go along with the legs, yeah. which I feel like with the Raptors, we had the legs, but we also need to build up the, the skill, talent. You know, we don't have a Salah, for example, or even a Trent. Um, I, I saw in They here, have a Trent. The Raptors have a Trent. Is a Firmino, uh, Scotty comp. I like that. I like that. You know, not the highest score, but can set up other players to yeah. score. Underrated, lovable, you know. Uh, big, shiny, veneer teeth as well now, actually. <laughs> so, All right. Uh, Speaking of aesthetic you got, choices. You got style I, rankings for one minute, Blake. Go ahead. Yeah, we've only got like two minutes. So, uh, Samson does his game day fit every day. Uh, took a shot at Grady Dick the other day. Said, your game day fit was better than uh, his spread. I'm, of course, wearing uh, what Scotty Barnes wore at training camp in Vancouver. Who are your top three style guys on the Raptors? Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. It, it's Precious is number one yeah. by a wide margin. Uh, Gary, because he tries a lot of stuff. And, then and because he compliments your outfits. That was cool. I enjoyed <laughs> that. And then Scotty, I think, because Scotty, like, there's the rule of thirds, right? It's like you have long legs. You can dress yourself into, a, like, really good-looking aesthetics. And um, Scotty, not only is he, like, really good to dress, but he's also, like, he dresses super well. I think those are the top three. But Precious is first by a mile. I, I don't think it's particularly close. Blake, I, I need your content on who's last. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's last aesthetically, but I have a deep appreciation for the vets who wear nothing but team yeah. handed out. Like, Marcus Marcus never yeah. wore anything but Raptor sets. My, my guess is once we start seeing Otto Porter around the team, he's uh, only in, like, team oh, and NBA-issued sweats. Come on, man. Um, I'm just saying, it's a vet move. 
Yeah. Why pay money for clothes and get your own clothes dirty when there's free ones there? If I had to say it, it'd be Yak, him wearing the white Kyrie's, just pure white. Mm-hmm. I mean, just just go to the pure white hyperdunks. You know, you know you want to. Anyway, we're gonna we're gonna stop here for today. I've been your host, Willow. You've been listening to the Raptor Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Make sure you find the Raptor Show wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe and please rate and review the show. Thanks once again to Blake Murphy, producer and co-host Alex Wong, Gordy Herbert, Samson Folk, our board producer Derek Brendale, Jennifer Olnick, David Sis, and Jeremy Manitad for helping behind the scenes. We'll be back to talk to you tomorrow.